Well, good evening, gentlemen. Who's looking out across the crowd and not seeing one single brave lady who showed up for this talk? I wasn't sure who would show up, um, but wonderful. Um, shall we start with a little prayer? Okay. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray as Jesus taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, deliver us from evil. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Well, first of all, um, here's a word of welcome once again, and a word of thanks to the Knights, and also to, to Andrew. Um, here's something that, something that your, your priest can do every once in a while, is put together, is put together an extra talk. And, and I hope that it's something that is helpful to all of you, okay? That we can do this every once in a while. Because, you know, the Knights of Columbus, they do so many great things for a parish. Uh, and it's a fantastic service organization. And, of course, that's the meaning of the word love, isn't it? Doing good things for others regardless of what it costs you. That's what we're all about. However... There's times when you need to be fed as well. Okay, so from time to time, I hope that I can offer you little talks to hopefully help boost your spirits and give you something to think about and help build your, your spiritual life as well. Help give back a little bit something to you who give so much to the parish. Okay, so, you know, this evening, um, I wanted to go over a really ambitious topic. A really ambitious topic. The subject is how to function in a dysfunctional society? And answering a question like that, how to function in a dysfunctional society, you know, you might as well say, I'm going to explain to you how we're going to solve all the world's problems, right? In 45 minutes or less. And it's impossible to say everything. It certainly cannot be said. But what I would hope to do is to let you walk away with a few ideas this evening. Okay? Just a few things that you can build on. And a few things also just... Just by way of introduction here, uh, the premise that I'm operating under is one that I hope that you all share. Okay? The premise is our society is dysfunctional and just flat out doesn't work. I hope everybody here recognizes uh, that we're living in highly unusual times. Society is fragmented. Society is dysfunctional uh, far beyond anyone's memory, certainly more than span of my little memory will serve. The worst I've ever seen. And there's two things that, just basically two things I want to try to accomplish here with you this evening, okay? First of all, to help understand how we got to where we are. And secondly, to help us know what, if anything, we can do about it, okay? So I also need to narrow the focus of my talk just a little bit. When I talk about a dysfunctional society, I need you to understand I'm speaking about the postmodern West. I'm speaking about North America, I'm speaking about Europe, I'm speaking about Australia, New Zealand, the capital city of pretty much every country in the world, uh, those who share the societal presuppositions that we're going to call the postmodern West. Now, what's interesting is that you can go to places in the world which the problems that I'm going to be describing here this evening, problems don't exist. Like, for example, I've done missionary work in Rwanda and in Zimbabwe and in Haiti and in the Dominican Republic. And you go and you visit these places and it's like a vacation from modernity. It's incredible. I mean, these people have a very low standard of living but a very high quality of life. If you ever have the chance, or I'm sure many of you have, and you can go to you know, some of these places that are off the beaten path. You can't get there as a tourist. You almost have to be a missionary or a doctor or something, traveling with a doctor, to get to see these places. The first thing that strikes you, it's almost disarming, is how happy everybody is. It's incredible. It's as though, you know, and, and we, as, as, uh, as Westerners, we keep trying to, Take pity on these poor people who run circles around us as far as how happy they are and how well-structured, well well-knit their families are. So, you know, the first thing that we have to understand is what I'm describing is not a worldwide problem, but it's definitely a problem for all of us, okay? 
Another big uh, preliminary is that it doesn't do us any good to just complain about the world's problems. I knew, I knew a wise employer, and he said something that, that I've always tried to, tried to repeat, something which I, I, I try to run our own office by this, by this maxim. He said, don't bring me problems, bring me solutions. Okay? Because anybody can see a problem and complain about it. It takes no skill whatsoever. You can look all around the world, and you can bellyache about how bad everything is, and it's very, very tempting to do that, but complaining achieves little to no good, and it's almost never a Christian response to our problems, okay? You and I are supposed to be leaven in this world. And how much leaven does it take to make the whole loaf rise? Just a little bit. So, you know, you might complain that, I don't know, maybe you're the only person in your office who thinks the way you think, and you know, I can certainly complain too. I, I've got 10 minutes a week from this pulpit, and I'm being contradicted by the television and, and, and the movies the, every other hour of the, of the entire week. But you want to know what? It's enough. You only need a pinch of leaven to make the whole loaf rise. So we want to have, want to have confidence in that, okay? You don't like the present? Let's work to shape the future, okay? But you can't shape the future unless you know the present. And you can't know the present unless you know how the present came to be. Okay, so that's the very first thing that I want to try to, to do with you this evening. At a history professor... I was a history major back in college. Had a history professor, and he said, the whole reason why we study history is to be able to speak about the, the, the present moment. The entire reason why we bother studying history is so that we can speak about the present moment intelligently. The less we understand the past, the more this present moment is hopeless and unchangeable and we won't know how to begin until we know how we got here. I've often said this before. I might have said it from the pulpit. If you want to be an educated person in the world today, you've got to live your life looking at the world in which you're living in the context of the last 500 years. You really should have about 500 years of perspective to really know what's going on in the world around us. Okay. So with that as a background, let me give you my overarching thesis for this evening. Okay. The dysfunction in our society is a direct consequence of our forgetfulness of God. That's my thesis. If you don't like it, you'll find the exit signs clearly marked, okay? Because that's, that's where I'm going. <laughs> the, the dysfunction in our society is a direct consequence of our forgetfulness of God. You go back to the book of Judges. And after Joshua gave the people the promised land and died, and he led the people from the last stages of wandering through the desert, and at last, you know, after all the promises of Moses and the years in the desert, they finally arrived in the promised land. Very soon after he died, the people began to forget all that God had done for them. They turned their backs on God, and they declined. Their society fell, and they quickly fell into the hands of their enemies. And this has been a temptation down through the centuries that man thinks he'd be so much better off if he just ignores God and does his own thing, and it never works. You know the parable, you might remember this parable. You know the parable of, of uh, the workers and the vineyard, and the owner sends all these people to his vineyard, and they keep killing them? And suddenly they send the son to the vineyard, and they say, oh, if we kill the son, we'll own the vineyard? Pope Benedict commented on that parable once, and he said, this is the way, this is the way society views God, essentially. If I can just kill God, get God out of the picture entirely. Then at last, society will flourish. Society will blossom and, and, and bloom. We tend to think this way ourselves, personally, individually. If I can just get my prayer out of the way, then I can enjoy my day. If I can just get mass out of the way, then I can really enjoy myself. And what we come to realize is it's the opposite of the truth. The more we get God out of the way, relegate him to the background, the worse off things get. Okay. You notice some, um, all these ideologues down through history that tried to create utopia, that tried to create heaven on earth, they've all succeeded in one thing, creating dystopia. Right? The more utopic the vision of the founder, the more brutal the totalitarianism that followed. It happens every time, like a branch severed from a tree. Cut a branch off of a tree, and for a few hours it 
appears to be alive and well. It's live, it's green, it's supple, but it's an illusion. Severed from the tree, it has no future. So too a society severed from God. Okay, so that's my thesis. A corollary thesis to that is that we're dysfunctional because we don't have a common culture anymore. Culture is that which has the power to bring people together when things are at their worst. Um, example of that. World War II. Everybody knows about the, the, the Battle of Britain, right? And the Luftwaffe tried to break the back of the British people and destroy their spirits with bombing raids on London. And um, the British government put up a poster, became very famous, especially in, in, in recent years. The Great Big Crown. Have you seen this before? Great Big Red Poster, Great Big Crown. It says, keep calm and carry on. You know that? And, and they've made many, many internet memes out of it ever since with variations on keep calm and carry on. But the idea there was one that culture brings us together. The only thing depicted in that image was a crown. It was as if the message very simply was, let's remember who we are. We can get through this. We're all one people. Okay? Without a culture, um, we can't get through the worst. Our culture has atrophied. And our culture has decayed. And here's why. Because belief has decayed. Okay? Culture, you may or may not know this, culture derives from the Latin word cultus. And it means worship. And worship, it's, it actually comes directly out of Old English, and the etymology of it is, is right in the word itself. Worship, it comes from the words worthship. The idea is, whatever you value, whatever you give worth to, this is what you worship. And here's the idea behind, behind culture. If you give enough people freedom, give them free time, they will express what they believe. They will reveal what they worship. Okay, there was a, a, an author named Joseph Pieper. I'm sure many of you have heard of Joseph Pieper. He wrote, a, his, his landmark book was called Leisure, the Basis of Culture. And what he basically said is this is, what culture, this is what culture is. Give a group of people free time and observe what they do. Observe the kind of music they make. Observe the kind of art they make. Observe the kind of buildings they put up. Sum it all up and that is culture. They will reveal what they worship. They will reveal what they love. And um, if culture comes from worship, then the deeper our beliefs, the more beautiful the culture we produce. Are our beliefs very deep these days? Not really. Look back at the Middle Ages. What was the centerpiece of their town? Great cathedrals, right? And these magnificent works of art are still in use today and still for their original purpose, a thousand years after they were built. Can the same be said for, for, for the achievements of, of our culture? What do we make? Uh, I don't know, video games? Sports stadiums? Whatever it is, it doesn't last, right? Um, in today and, 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 and gone tomorrow. You look, at the, uh, you look at the art we produce. My own personal opinion that 1,000, 2,000 years from now, they're going to be doing archaeology on, you know, say, New York City or Washington, D.C. They're going to dig down through, say, the, the, the ruins of the, of, the, um, of the east wing of the National Gallery. They're going to find some of that stuff they call art. They're going to keep on digging because they're going to think that it's trash. Did they ever tell you this story? I might have used this from the, I might have used this from the pulpit or not. But in the Tate Museum in London, okay, London's Modern Art Museum, there was an exhibit that consisted of nothing but corrugated boxes. Did I tell you this? Nothing but corrugated boxes. That's all it was. And this was a work of art. Okay, so the night before it opened, the Queen was going to come to the Tate Museum and, and see this work of art. The night before it opened, the janitor threw it away. <laughs> and, and people complained, right? And they bellyached. And they said, well, you see, you know, the janitor. What does he know? He's not, he's not cultured. He doesn't know anything. And the response came back from some quick-witted individual said, oh, no, he's a professional and he knows trash when he sees it. <laughs> but why are we dysfunctional? We're dysfunctional because we don't worship anything. We don't have a culture that holds us together. Okay? So we want to understand, if we want to know how to function in a dysfunctional world, we want to know a little bit of history and a little bit of philosophy. Okay? That's what we're going to do. Okay, so question for you here this evening. If you had a time machine... 
and you wanted to go back in time to a day before our culture was dysfunctional, how far back would you have to go? Okay, how far back, and understand, I'm not talking about how far back would you have to go before the society was perfect. I'm not talking about, you know, going back to society before faults or society before sin. The answer to my question is not the Garden of Eden, okay? But how, how far back do you have to go before a dysfunctional society exists? And there's probably as many different answers to that question as there are people sitting here in this room. There's everybody who has their own idea of what the good old days were. There's some people who say, well, you know, things started falling apart in the 60s, got to go back before the 60s. And somebody else says, no, 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 it was, it was World War I that really was the undoing of society. And others will say, no, 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 it was the Industrial Revolution. That's really what did it. It was when we got off the farms and worked towards factories that families started falling apart. And somebody else will say, no, you know, it's deeper than that. You've got to go back before the days of the French Revolution. How far back do you have to go? I'll give you my little answer, okay? My little answer is that you have to go back to the middle of the 14th century. Okay? You've got to go back to the days before a certain thinker, his name was William of Ockham. So that's how far back you have to go because William of Ockham came up with an idea that, in my little opinion, if nothing else, changed the entire world and is, is the seminal idea of the world in which we're living. His idea was called nominalism, okay? And nominalism sounds very innocent, but it's the idea that universal truths don't exist. Okay? All we have are names for things. But these names don't correspond to any reality. All we have are little particular individual, like for example, all of you have a, a shirt on this evening. And that's a shirt, and that's a shirt, and that's a shirt, and that's a shirt, and that's a shirt. And I can look at all these things and I can know that, th that they're all shirts. Okay. William of Ockham would say there's no such thing as a shirt. He would say there's only a piece of cloth with different colors and different fabrics. But there's no such universal as a shirt or as a chair or as anything else. Now that might not sound like very much, but that idea is the author, the intellectual ancestor of what we today call relativism. Relativism says that there's no such thing as truth. There's just what's true for you and what's true for me. And I hope you recognize right off the bat, relativism is self-contradictory. No person without contradicting themselves can stand before a crowd and say, there's no such thing as truth. There's just truth for you and truth for me. Because what I've just done is assert a universal truth that you're, you must agree with, regardless of whether you like it or not. Right? It, it's in a self-contradictory to say there are absolutely no absolutes. Right? That there's, there's universally no universals. And it's absolutely true that there's no such thing as absolute truth. It's self-contradictory. If you're ever trying to argue with a relativist, just walk down that path and you'll win every time. Okay? Um, but this is where it came from. This is the heart of our Western dysfunction. Without universal truth, you don't have a culture. Without a culture, you can't talk to people. What happens in our own time? We talk past each other. I mean, you ever had a, an argument about pro-life? And you, people aren't they're even talking about the same subject. One's talking about life, one is talking about women's rights, and the argument goes like that. It, doesn't, it never intersects. And who wins arguments in such a world? Who wins arguments in such a world? The one who shouts the loudest. Now, doesn't that describe the, 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 the daily discourse that happens in our, in our politics? Who wins in such an argument? Whoever has the person in elected office or on the, whatever court who has the most power, that's who wins. So naturally, what do we do? We focus on political power. Symptomatic of a dysfunctional culture and an inevitable consequence of a world that has forgotten the importance and the centrality of God. That's where we are. It wasn't always this case. It wasn't always this way. If you go back to the days before nominalism, and you know, ideas have consequences, that it took root and changed society. Before that time, um, you had a culture in which manners and social customs and moral culture were largely informed by a Christian vision. Okay? And it was common and it was assumed across all of society, which is something that we still have, just different ideas. Okay, consider this. Every society in which we live has a fundamental vision that gives the society its atmosphere. Okay? And it's often only partially realized that those, by those who breathe that atmosphere that a society more or less has a set of assumed truths. Some people will be very, very, very zealous for these truths. Others will pay very little attention to this assumed truth, but almost no one will deny 
these assumed truths. And our society is no exception. We have zillions of these assumed truths. Let me, let me just give you a couple of examples, okay? Here's, here's one example. Personal hygiene, right? It is assumed that you're supposed to have personal hygiene. Here I stand before you, and I hope it's obvious that I combed my hair, that I took a shower today, that I brushed my teeth, and all of these things. And if I didn't, and I stood up here with disheveled hair, and I hadn't bathed in a week, and my teeth were yellow, and my odor so pungent that no one would dare sit in that seat, It'd be way in the back, you'd think to yourself, something's wrong with this guy. Okay? It's an assumed truth. But you know, take a trip back in time to the days before the American Revolution, before there was running water. And you'll find it very, very common that people would think nothing of going a month without bathing. Okay? It's, it's, an assumed, uh, it's an assumed culture. It's an assumed value. Another one is democracy. We take it for granted that democracy is a nearly sacred term. Okay? There's hostility for advocating anything else. If I stood up here this evening and, and I advocated monarchy to you, the more intellectual and open-minded of you might give me a hearing, but you'd all probably walking away, walk away thinking that I was a little bit odd, if nothing else. Heaven knows, it'd probably make the newspaper. Crazy priest advocates monarchy from the pulpit. Probably would make the newspaper. But, you know, to, 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 in any society, a majority of people will go along with such ideas. Most of people will go along with them passively because group psychology is very important. This explains much of why we are the way we are. People go along with the rest of the crowd. It might have something to do with the fact that we have 200,000 years of collective history of hunter-gatherers. And nobody dares break from the crowd for fear of having to fend for their life on their own. It might be culturally conditioned. Heaven alone knows. Um, you know, once I was in the city of Dublin, and there was a hurling match. And if everybody spent time in Ireland, you know what hurling is. They say hurling is in the very soul of Ireland great big hurling match. And the, and the match let out, and tens of thousands of Irishmen fled out of, of the stadium, absolutely enraged that their team had lost. Well, you didn't dare, in a crowd like that, look anything other than enraged, okay, for your own safety's sake. I, I personally, I, I ducked into a pub. Um, I, I tried to get away from the crowd. But, you know, you, you, but there's assumptions about society uh, are, are very, very strong, and people go along with what everybody else is going lo- along with, and they, they stand until some crisis comes along, which leads to a significant change in people's thinking. Society itself goes into a crisis. Large numbers of people begin to question these basic assumptions, not find them compelling anymore. Like, for example, um, in the 3rd and 4th centuries, within the Greco-Roman world, when the world began to embrace Christianity, turn the world upside down. Turn the world upside down. What I'd like to tell you here this evening is that since the 18th century, there's been a change of this magnitude. Okay? It's been slowly working its way into Western society. That change is relativism. And it's been caused by two movements. The better you understand these two movements, the better you understand what's going on in our society. One movement is intellectual and one movement is political. Okay? Let me tell you the intellectual movement. It comes from René Descartes. Okay, I don't want to throw too much philosophy here at you this evening, but there's, no real, there's really no way around it. Rene Descartes wrote a book called Discourse on Method. Okay? And you've, you've heard this before. I think, therefore, I am, right? Famous enough? Rene Descartes said, cogito ergo, sum. cogito ergo sum. That idea turned the world upside down. That is the intellectual um, result of, of nominalism, but the the, the, the seminal seed that, that gave birth to our modern world. Because what it did was it defined reality in terms of the self. Go back before the days of René Descartes and you'll find an opposite presupposition. Not, I think, therefore I am, but I am, therefore I think. You see the difference there? In René Descartes' vision, reality is defined in terms of yourself. In the vision before, reality exists first. It's something you can bump up up against and discover. It's something that forms your thinking, forms your morals, forms your values, forms your idea of what the world is and how we're supposed to live in it and how we're supposed to treat one another. René Descartes' idea, cogito ergo sum, turned it on its head and now everything was defined in terms of the self. Now that had good consequences. Wasn't all bad, don't get me wrong. 
You want to know one thing that came about as a consequence of Rene Descartes' cogito ergo sum? The scientific method. Scientific method is pure Cartesian. Scientific method says, I'm going to start assuming nothing, right? I assume nothing at all, and I'm going to observe. I'm going to draw conclusions based on what I observe. That's the scientific method. Scientific method gave us modern medicine. Okay? You can be grateful. You can be grateful to the ideas of Rene Descartes every time you go to the hospital. Uh, otherwise, they'd still be bleeding you with leeches. Heaven knows what would be happening. Right? You can be grateful that, materially speaking, spiritually speaking, it was a disaster. Spiritually speaking, Rene Descartes was a disaster because it was the turn away from God-centeredness to man-centeredness. It was the turn away from being to what I think. Because after Descartes, the only thing that's real are things that you can measure. Things that you can weigh, things that you can measure, things that you can look at under a microscope. The only thing that exists is material things. And everything else is just your opinion. Because you can't weigh it, because you can't measure it, because you can't subject it to an empirical test. That means everything spiritual. And what happens to ideas like truth in a culture like that? What happens to ideas like beauty in a culture like that? Or love in a culture like that? What happens to them? They become whatever you want them to be. And doesn't that describe the world that we're living in? Without a sense of what's real. If you define reality in terms of the self, then everything spiritual, truth, love, beauty, everything becomes nothing more than your own opinion. And there is no right, and there is no wrong, except for the fact that there's no right and no wrong. We're not going to get back into that again. But that was the intellectual idea that led us to where we are right now. Okay? Here's the political idea. The political idea was the French Revolution. Okay? The French Revolution is not just an excuse in the middle of July to have a party. Right? It wasn't just a political upheaval. It was what might be called an anthropological revolution. It proposed nothing less than a different idea of what a human being is. That's the French Revolution. With implications for every aspect of human life. Okay? And at the heart of the French Revolution were two ideas. One about God and one about man. About God was the idea that God is not important for the ordering of human life. And doesn't that describe the world in which we're living right now? If it works for you, great. But you can't say objectively God is, God, God is important for the ordering of human life. That's what they said about God. And about man, and I know I'm throwing a lot of big ideas at you here this evening, but hopefully some of this sticks. About man, the idea is man is not really a fallen creature. Just imperfect. Not fundamentally good but flawed but just ignorant or unskilled. And as a society, we can fix that. We can fix that. Okay. Now, in a Christian view of things, um, everything is fundamentally good, but fallen. We're not who we're supposed to be because we broke from God. In the French Revolution, after the French Revolution, they assumed that you can change external things like education or laws. And if you get the right laws in a society, you can make heaven on earth. Society becomes, societies become, governments become nothing more than um, um, a science experiment. In which if you can just get the right formula, at last you'll be able to, to, to concoct the perfect society. Hence, our, you know, basically secular leftists' idea um, of, of, of the importance of, the, the, the overarching importance of laws. Because heaven, it's the difference between, it's the difference between uh, uh, chaos um, and, and, and utopia. We can create heaven right here on earth. Now, these ideas took a long time to, to settle in. Rene Descartes didn't win the day immediately. The French Revolution didn't win the day immediately. But they set in motion currents that we're still facing today. They created a revolution in the family. They created a revolution in morality. They created a revolution in the role of religion. Okay? Necessary consequences of these ideas concerning what a human being is. And ideas have consequences, as I've said. The entire 19th century was a battle. You know, go back to the 1800s, what was going on in Europe, what was going on in the universities. It was a battle. A battle between 
what direction should society take? Should we take the French Revolution's direction or should we take the, the direction that led up until the French Revolution? And this went get back and forth and back and forth and get, guess which one won the day? Modernity. The French Revolution conquered the day. It conquered Europe before it conquered America. Believe it or not, the full blast of the ideas of the French Revolution didn't hit American shores until the 60s. I'm not saying they were entirely absent. Okay. You talk about the universities, you talk about the um, um, academic elites and, and cultural elites. It, it was there, but as far as the rank and file of, of, of American culture, it didn't really hit until the 60s. Until the 60s, we basically had a vague Protestant Christianity here in America. Okay. Um, but we, did, we adopted, since that time, French revolutionary anthropology and ideology. There's nothing really wrong with man, but there's tremendous amount wrong with our laws. Okay, we just pass the right laws, we tinker with society, we can cure things, we can get rid of injustices. We can get rid of poverty, we can get rid of loneliness, we can get rid of oppression, we can have the proper social planning and the application especially of expert knowledge and only expert knowledge, nobody else but the experts, okay? And this is the root of the dysfunction of our society. It's basically what we're facing is a society that takes these things as presuppositions. And what I'm trying to say here are these presuppositions don't correspond with reality. They're not real. It's not true. People are living under different presuppositions about what a human being is. About what religion is. About what government ought to do about what it's capable of doing, about what it's competent of doing, about what its natural limits are. And this comes down to this fundamental question. Is God real or not? That's the question. Is God real or not? And by real, you know, I don't mean, like you can find an atheist, you can find an agnostic, and they're perfectly comfortable with the idea of God. So long as it doesn't have any real world consequences in it, right? I mean, so long as the idea of God is kept with, say, with sacred architecture or the Westminster Boys Choir, Christmas carols, no problem, okay? No problem, no argument whatsoever. Um, but when God begins to have laws and commandments, when there begins to be a heaven and a hell, when your ideas have consequences, that causes a real division. That's the dysfunction we're living in now, Okay? That's, that division is the root of our dysfunction, okay? So, two temptations that we live with as a consequence of this division that I've just got finished describing. Two temptations. Number one, assuming that we're living in the apocalypse. And by apocalypse, I don't mean the end of the world, okay? I'm not talking about scanning the skies for the sign of the second coming, like Jesus is coming again next week. That's not what I mean. What I mean is uh, that society is so bad that it's irredeemable. Um... What you want to keep in mind as you look at society and our current dysfunction is that down through history, especially in the first three centuries of the church, we face similar situations many, many times. Okay? And it's often happened in missionary environments. As the church went out to different uh, societies and different cultures, it, it, it found itself profoundly at odds with the standards of prevailing society. Let me give you one example. Okay? Spanish missionaries, 1600s, they come to what is now Arizona. And they meet the people who we now call the Navajo. Okay? And what they found, this, the Franciscan missionaries who came there, was that it was so easy to evangelize these people. It was so easy to evangelize these people. They told them about Jesus. The people said, this is great. Yeah, sure, Jesus, we love him. Blessed Mother, suddenly they all loved the Blessed Mother. And they told them about St. Joseph, and they all loved St. Joseph. And they told them about Francis of Assisi, and they all loved Francis of Assisi. They told them about the angels, and they told them about the saints, and they told them about all these. And the more, the, more they, the more they described their faith to these people, the more it became clear that they, they weren't changing anything in their lives. All they were doing was adding more characters to the list of gods that they already had. Okay? All they were doing was adding gods to their pantheon. They're like, these, European, these European missionaries are great. They're telling us about all these new gods we didn't know about. And only then did they break through and they realized, hey, wait a minute, guys, we have a problem here. I'm not talking about an additional gods t t together with, with, with the gods you believe in. I'm talking about something entirely different. That's when the real evangelization began. And it was very difficult. Okay? It's very tempting to think that we haven't been through this before. Truth is, we've been through things like this many times. What we're facing here is a real challenge of evangelization. Another temptation we want to avoid, the temptation to be nostalgic. Okay? 
wistfully and sentimentally pining for the good old days when everything was better and happy. Don't do it, because the good old days, as Billy Joel once said, weren't always good. Okay? Um, it, the good old days simply weren't. One of my favorite examples of this, St. Augustine, writing in the Confessions. He talks about, and this is back in the 4th century, he talks about how irritated he is at all these people who, wisp, who are wistfully pining for the good old days. This is the 4th century, okay? And he says the only reason that they're pining for the good old days is they didn't live in them. If they'd lived in them, they knew that they weren't good, okay? So resist, resist those temptations and keep this one in mind. St. Thomas More, he said, there's no time so bad that a good person cannot live in it. And here's something else I'd like to throw at you this evening about how to function in a dysfunctional society. There's no such thing as an objectively good time or bad time to be a Christian. It's just different. Every time has its advantages and it has its disadvantages. And this one is no different. For example, you could live in a Christianized age. And there's great advantages to that, right? Great cultural achievements. There's a great basis for law and a great basis for morality that's rooted in Christianity. It's much easier to raise children in, in, in such an environment. Uh, Christians are at peace with their place in the public square. They don't have to worry about being persecuted. But you know, there's a great disadvantages to living in a Christianized age. Great disadvantages. The, here's one of them. The majority of people in a highly Christianized age are just along for the ride. It's easy. Christianity can become cold in such a time. It can become institutional in such a time. It can lose the radical character which made it attractive to people in the first place. Right? How, did, how did Christianity conquer the Roman Empire? By, by how radical it was, by how different it was. The greatest disadvantage of all of living in a Christianized age, hypocrisy is remarkably easy. Okay? Because there's many people who will pretend to be more interested in God and in virtue if they, than they really are if it's profitable to pretend. And that is profitable, so they do. Okay? Professing Christ in such a society brings power and it brings wealth. And so, greedy and power-hungry people go to work at the expense of the church and at the integrity of the church. Things that you will never find in a time when the church is poor, weak, and powerless. You've heard of simony, the buying and selling of sacred things. Bishops and priests become corrupt because they can be corrupt, become corrupt. Okay. People living in the heart of the church whose hearts really belong to the world and not to the Lord. The exact same societal malaise that brought about the Protestant Reformation in the first place. It was what made it so attractive. People wanted to overthrow all of that and, and, and get back to the radical Christianity of, 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 of the past. And so the dysfunctional world in which we're living is a very different one for being a Christian. You have to be a missionary if you want to be a Christian in our own time. It's almost like we're, we're just like the first Christians once again. You have to be a missionary. You've got to build a counterculture. And that's actually what we're doing. You want to know what we're doing at St. Jude Church? You want to know what we're doing at every little church? We're building a tiny little culture. Did I ever tell you about the priest I know who's a college chaplain? And, and somebody from the newspaper came and said, you know, I think that you're, haven't you ever considered, you know, that you're running the, the risk of building a counterculture here at this college chaplaincy? Ever, I might have said this from the pulpit. And he goes, running the risk of building a, building a counterculture? I'm working, if I were the greatest priest that ever lived, I, I, I would be able to build maybe a microculture. This if, if I was as holy as Francis of Assisi. Currently, I'm, I'm trying to build a nanoculture. Building a counterculture, that's beyond my wildest dreams. Would that I could be so successful. Okay? We're trying to build a tiny little micro-nanoculture ourselves. Because okay? there's advantages of living in this time. The faith is genuine. There will be people who fail to live up to their ideals. Okay? But no one's going to pretend to be a Christian in an age like our own, an age which punishes Christians. An age in which you have to pay a price for the faith. Hypocrisy gets uprooted. Okay? These days our faith has to be radical. It has to be more intense. It has to be more life-altering. It has to be more alternative. Take young Christians today. They are deliberate. There's something about young Christians these days. They're deliberate and it's really attractive. In a world like our own, bishops and priests have got to be pure servants of Christ. We can't be servants of the world. It doesn't work. The church is happier. There's some really beautiful fruits. The role of the laity emerges with beautiful clarity in a time like our own. So I know I've mentioned this before. 
Um, but the role of the laity is to take what you get inside the walls of the church outside to the people whose lives you touch and whose lives only you touch. That's your job. You know, that's like the most important line maybe in the Mass is, you know, go in, go in peace, glorifying the Lord by your life. That's the role of the laity. It becomes remarkably powerful and important right? to, 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 to do this. Um, disadvantages are obvious. We lose influence in the wider culture. There's severe injustices from ignoring the truth of Christ in the world. Uh, societies and governments pre- prevent you from practicing your faith in peace. They can, as you know from reading the news, they can slap punitive measures on you. They can put you out of business, businesses that you spent years and years building. Um, you can't practice your faith without harassment. Uh, there's a strong temptation to be a coward in times like this. Family life becomes very, very difficult. It was very difficult to raise children. Sometimes people will send their kids to Catholic school. They'll have a perfect environment for kids in which to be raised in their home. And then their kids will grow up and they won't practice the faith. And this happens all the time. And parents turn to the priest and they say, what did I do wrong? And the priest says, you didn't do anything wrong. You were the perfect mom. You were the perfect dad. Trust me, it doesn't get any better than what I saw, what you gave under your roof. It's just that the culture is so pervasive um, that that can, that, 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 that can happen. These are the disadvantages. Okay? So, our response. What do we do? What do we do? Okay, this is the question of our age. You've heard the term new evangelization? This is a term coined by Pope Paul VI. It was repeated by John Paul II. It was repeated by Benedict. It's been repeated by Francis. The idea is that the world in which we live right now is one in which we are proposing the gospel as if for the first time to the world that has left it behind. Like I said, we're like the first Christians. And they call this the new evangelization. It's new in its scope. It's new in its methods. It's new in its fervor. Now, one big thing I need to say about making how to, how to function in a dysfunctional world, how to live the new evangelization. We have to admit right at the, at the start, we don't really know what we're doing. Okay? Because it's new, we don't know what we're doing. We do things and they fail. We have to be afraid. We cannot be afraid to try new things and some of them won't, some of them won't succeed. We tried a couple of things here at St. Jude that didn't succeed. I tried to start a coffee shop right there in the, in the, in the vestibule. A time for people to have coffee. It, it fell apart in the span of a couple of months. But we tried, right? I knew a priest. One day a week, for a few hours a day, he sits in a public park at a, at a car, with a card table. And, and on that card table, he has a, a, a little folded um, sign, and it says, Catholic priest, prayer, confession, blessings. That's all it says. And you can imagine the stories that guy comes up with. The people, that they're not necessarily going to go to a church, but they walk by this public place, and they sit down and... Talk to the priest. God bless him. He's trying. That's the new evangelization. Okay, so what do we do? I want to give you a, a few cues from the new evangelization that we can take from the old evangelization. Okay? Um, because those first Christians, they were a resounding success. Were they not? Yes, they were. Okay? So we, we, need, we don't need to reinvent the wheel here. First of all, don't be afraid to start small. We have this silly idea that if it isn't on a grand scale, that it's not worth doing. But, you know, take a cue from the guy who did it first. Take a cue from Christ himself. He started small. He started with 12 apostles. And these guys were chumps. They really were. I mean, we, 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 we idealize them and we glorify them when we cast them in alabaster and, you know, bathe them in candlelight. But the truth is, these guys were worldly-minded. They were selfish. Christ came to his hour of greatest need. They abandoned him. You know what they were interested in? A political messiah. They thought that Jesus Christ was going to overthrow the Roman Empire and he was going to become a great worldly king on the par with David and Solomon and that they were going to be his right hand. And that's what they thought until after the resurrection, until after the ascension. But you want to know what? It was enough. It was enough. It was enough for him. Jesus founded his church on these little guys with no backup plan. He wasn't afraid to start small. The apostles weren't afraid to start small. You know these ancient Christian communities, you've heard of you know, St. Paul's letter to the Corinthians and letter to the Thessalonians and all these things. You know how small these little groups were? They were just a communities of a few dozen people. They could go, you know what St. Paul used to do? He used to go to a town like, say, Thessalonica. And you've heard of St. Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. He'd go to a town like Thessalonica and he'd go into the synagogue. And he would pr- proclaim the gospel to the synagogue and most people would laugh at him and throw him out. But a few people would listen. 
So he'd go, go over to their houses and he'd tell them about, about Christ and, and they'd be convinced and they, and they could be convinced their, their friends. And this is how the faith got started. Don't be afraid to start small. What does that mean? Begin with your family. Begin with your friends. Don't hide your light. Okay? Make known what you believe. You don't have to flaunt it, but don't hide it. I was, um, I, w- I was a missionary in Africa and when I was down there, I couldn't help but take a chance to, to go look at the wild animals. So I went to Botswana, and I spent a whole week tracking lions in Botswana and wild dogs. And I, I wasn't dressed like this. I was in camouflage, right? And it, nobody knew I was a priest. Until the end of the week, this, somebody was asking me, you know, what do you do for a living? And I told them I'm a Catholic priest. And they were absolutely floored. You're a Catholic priest. Oh, my goodness, that's so amazing. And they had so many questions. And it was a wasted week. They should let them run right up front, right? Don't be afraid to hide your light. Begin with your family. Begin with your friends. You can do this with, with, with very small things, with very small, with very small, um, with very small amount of effort. Another thing to do is study. Saint Peter says in his first letter, "Be ready to give a reason for the hope that's in you." And these days with the internet, there is no excuses. No excuses, gentlemen. There's many resources out there. Imagine this. Imagine that if instead of listening to music, presuming you listen to music, what, what if you spent 15 minutes a day listening to a Catholic CD? 15 minutes a day. It wouldn't be much time passed for you knew a lot. And you had a lot, that you could, a lot that you could say. You know, imagine if you set aside reading the news for 10 minutes a day. I don't know how much news you consume, but if you're like most people, you're a news junkie. Okay? And, um, and my, my favorite quote about the news these days um, um, comes from Morgan Freeman, you know, the actor Morgan Freeman. He says, the trouble with the news these days is that if you don't read the news, you're uninformed, but if you do read the news, you're misinformed. (laughs) I think that's absolutely the truth. But suppose you took 10 minutes a day, and you spent the time reading instead of reading the news. It wouldn't be long before you really knew a lot. Technology has changed the way we think, it's changed the way we feel, it's changed the way we act. I was reading an article not long ago, it was entitled, um, Has Google Made Us Stupid? I think the answer is yes. Okay? But check not, we were founded in this country on a, as a print culture, okay? which required a greater attention span. It required a deeper amount of literacy. And as technology replaces print, as images replace ideas, ideas get simplified, and much essential complex information and content is never shared. Okay? Listen, if you want to have a mind that can process ideas, reach the depth of somebody's heart, you've got to read. There is no, there is no other way. Okay? Um, the human soul is infinitely deep and your knowledge needs to be very, very, very deep as well. So you've got to start work, getting to work on building that. Okay? Take time to study. Okay, the second and the most basic thing of all, and this is so basic that it almost seems scandalous, you've got to sanctify yourself. This has to be your number one priority. Pope John Paul II, he said this in his letter to priests. He said, the most important thing for the success of any parish endeavor is not your means, a.k.a. your collection. It's not your resources, a.k.a. your buildings. It's not your programs. The most important thing for the success of any parish endeavor is the holiness of the priest. Now, we believe in something called the domestic church. That means that every home is one holy, Catholic, and apostolic. And in a sense, I'm pastor of St. Jude, you're pastor of your home. You want to begin the new evangelization. Listen, you can't place too high a priority in this idea. Sanctify yourself. It's the only revolution that lasts. It's the only one that has the power to change anything. And that's the conversion of your own heart. Please don't waste your time lamenting all that's wrong with the world. Instead, become a person of prayer. Be an antidote to activism. Bring the invisible and the spiritual into a world that is all material. Help set people in a right relationship with their creator. Become a soul that values obedience. Jesus Christ didn't go to the cross because of poverty. Jesus Christ didn't go to the cross because of chastity. Jesus Christ went to the cross because of obedience. When the church canonizes a saint, the one thing it looks for, above all else, was was that soul obedient. If they find rebellion, if they find disobedience, their cause is dead. Become a soul that values obedience. It's a counter to the idolatry of pride. Learn to respect and obey legitimate authority. Become a soul of simplicity. 
counter the, idol the idolatry of consumerism. Be careful about multiplying needs for yourself. Today, there's a tremendous evangelizing power in simplicity. Become a person of integrity, somebody who respects the truth and meaning of human sexuality. You might fall a dozen times, but don't ever surrender your principle. That's the one thing we cannot do. Become a person of penance. You don't need to indulge every comfort. We need a life that is ordered around embracing voluntary sacrifices. Become somebody who knows and loves the saints. Knows and loves the saints, gentlemen. You know who we honor in our world culture today? Celebrities. Celebrities, because we've forgotten about real, real heroes. Celebrities are heroically talented, don't get me wrong. They might be heroically physically attractive, okay, obviously. But they're not heroes. The saints are our heroes and we've forgotten about them. It's part of the reason why we have Captain America and Wonder Woman. <laughs> Nothing wrong with Captain America and Wonder Woman, but they're fictional. Right? We, they're, we created fictional heroes because we've forgotten about the real ones. Learn about the lives of the saints. They're the most inspiring figures in history. Okay? Learn their stories. We want to be exactly the opposite of the way we've been for the past half century or more. We've been compromising, we've been assimilating, we've been fitting in, we've been fleeing from who we really are as believers. And in the process, we've been consumed and digested by the very culture that we were sent to make holy in the first place. C.S. Lewis said that Christianity is a fighting religion. And he didn't mean a religion of violence. He meant that it was a religion of candor, that we simply call good, good. And that we're not afraid to call evil, evil. Perseverance in the struggle against sin, the power of courage, the power of humility, these themselves are tremendous battles. How do you function in a dysfunctional society? You strengthen that spirit in one another and you begin with yourself. I'm convinced that if you do that and only that, God will do the rest. Might sound like something small. In fact, it is something small, but Christians know better than anybody else that entire worlds and empires can change with one soul, just one soul, turns his heart to God and says, yes. Thank you very much.